Hey listeners, just a warning that this episode contains some description of trauma as well as drug reference. So if you're sensitive to that content, you may want to skip around the 23 minute mark to about the 25 minute mark. Enjoy the episode. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, this podcast is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm your host, Allie Nielsen, and this is Employed. Most people will never have an experience like that where you, that kid wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for us. And those are the really cool things that make it worth it. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining me tonight and coming onto the podcast. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Jeremy, and I'm a pre-hospital provider in the state of Arizona. Can you give us a little bit of a job description and what that means? So we work in all pre-hospital settings, and then depending on what agency you work for, you can also do what are called inter-facility transports. So we do both a 911 and we'll transport patients to higher levels of care, whether it's like a stroke center or a trauma center, patients who are intubated, uh, require cardiac drugs and things like that, and we'll transfer them to higher levels of care. Is that job title interchangeable with EMT or paramedic, or is there a difference between all of these? So that's going to vary by state. Uh, every state has recognizes their own certification level. There's typically four in every state, and there, your EMT will be your uh, kind of an entry level, and then you can graduate to like an advanced EMT or an intermediate EMT, and then from there, a paramedic, and then every state has their own form of like a critical care the people that fly in the helicopters and that typical your critical care type of paramedic. Oh, I had no idea that there were different levels. Yeah. So what made you interested in this field? Uh, So my dad does this too. So I grew up at the firehouse. When I was a kid, we were were there. Every time he was on shift, we'd go see him and play on the trucks. Uh, And then also the high school that I went to had a program where I got my fire and EMS certifications while I was a senior in high school. So I went to high school for half the day and then I went to like college classes half the day at a fire academy. Oh, that is awesome. Okay. So let's segue into that a little bit and find out what education is required or what experience and training was required to get to this position. So your, your entry level is your EMT and that's typically going to be about a semester. It's nine college credits, nine to 12 college credits. Every state has different requirements, but in Arizona, you need to be an EMT for three years before you can transition on to being a paramedic. And then you can go to an intermediate or an advanced in Arizona, or you can bypass that and go directly to a paramedic. Education-wise, it's typically going to need like an anatomy and physiology class. Uh, You're going to need your CPR. You'll go through what's called an emergency vehicle operators course, where you learn how to drive uh, lights and sirens through city streets and how to be safe. When you're finished with all your your, uh, classes, you'll take what's called a national registry test. And they uh, will certify you in the entire United States. So you'll do like a skills testing where you uh, will set up fake scenarios. Where you'll have like a trauma patient, a medical patient, uh, like a bleeding and shock. What's called a bag valve mask when someone's not breathing. You take a bag and you uh, will join it over their nose and their mouth and breathe for them. And then like a practice cardiac arrest. So you have to pass all of these skills and then they have... Every state has their own state test, and then you'll go on and take a national registry test before you can be certified in any state. Right. And, and with these tests, do you have to retest every few years to recertify or like, how does, how does that work? Is it a lifetime certification? 
So we have to recertify every two years. We have to take a minimum of 72 hours of continued education. And then you'll take a refresher class, which is uh, it's typically uh, anywhere between 12 and 15 hours. Every two years, you'll sit down and go over any new information that's been released. Uh, and then you'll redo your skills to prove that you're still competent. Uh, you actually have to retake your state test every two years. But you, it's, we have about 72 hours of continued education. And that will vary by state. What are the demographics of your field? Do you feel like it's heavily male dominated? Do you feel like there's a certain age range that's pretty typical in the workers? It is a male dominated field. And then the age range will be anywhere from 18 to 65. I've actually worked with someone who retired at 65. And I work with a lady now who is 61 years old. So it's typically a younger person game. Uh, a lot of people will go through this to move on to other things, but there are people who make it all the way through and retire, but it typically tends to be younger males in this career. I can think of a thousand reasons why I would not be able to handle a career like this. What do you think are good characteristics or skills that generally draw people into a field like this? you definitely have to be detail oriented. Uh, if you make a mistake, you can kill somebody. So you definitely have to have follow through. Uh, you have to be able to pay attention to your tasks and you have to recall a lot of information. And when you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, it's not always the easiest thing to do. So you have to be patient and you really have to let, let things roll off your back in essence, in that you will deal with a lot of trauma, deal with a lot of uh, individuals who are having basically the worst days of their life. They're calling 911. It's not going well. So you have to be sympathetic in that aspect, but you also have to understand that you can't let it get to you or it'll ruin your life. And you have to learn to just let things go and move on as best you can from the things you experience. I'm sure you guys have to definitely keep a level head and try and take care of your guys' selves the best you can so you don't get burnt out so easily in, in a field like this. Let's talk about pay. What range of salary or pay can someone typically expect to make at your position, let's say in Arizona? Your entry level, you're going to make anywhere about $35,000. But then this is, again, is going to be agency and your region specific. Uh, like we talked about, some agencies do just 911. Some of them will do just in their facilities. And some of them do a range of both. So depending on what agency you're associated with, if you're flying full-time as a critical care paramedic, you can make an upwards of $125,000, $150,000 a year. Uh, but the, the thing about this job is that we work 24, 48 hour shifts, and then you have access to basically unlimited overtime in the cities. They're always looking for people. Uh, you can never not have enough ambulances out there. So if you choose to, you can work five days of the week uh, and make decent money. But outside of considering overtime, I, your entry level is going to be about 35000 And then as you progress through certifications and agencies, you can make up to hundred and fifty roughly. So that, that was going to be my next question was your schedule. What, I know that you guys work crazy schedules. What is um, your regular schedule? How many hours a week do you work? And do you feel like this job allows for a proper work-life balance? This is, again, is going to be agency and regionally dependent. Some places, if the big, like the metro areas, you might work 12 hour shifts and you work four 12 hour shifts in a week. Uh, some of the more rural areas, you might work 24 hours and then you'll get like 48 hours off. 
sometimes some agencies work 48 hours and give you 96 hours off. The place that I work right now, we work three days in a row and then we get four days off. So it really depends on what you're doing. There's a lot of people that have families and they can prove that they can do it. But I think that if you're out looking to make more money, uh, you can have a work-life balance, but sometimes it's not going to be easy uh, because you'll just be exhausted throughout the day. Can you walk me through an average day at your job from the time that you arrive to the station to the time you leave? So your typical day you'll come in because we have drug boxes that have narcotics in them. Uh, you'll give like a crew sign off. You check off the drugs together, make sure everything's there. You tell them if there's any problems with the, uh, the trucks that we're going to be using for the day. And we'll basically spend 30 minutes doing like a crew exchange with any issues, what types of calls we ran, any heads up we need to know about. Uh, from there, we'll go on and check off our trucks. So that will be, we'll have a cardiac monitor. We need to make sure the battery's all working, papers in the cardiac monitor. We have oxygen in our rides. All our trauma supplies are up to par and where they need to be. Uh, after that's done, we'll do, we typically have a daily and a weekly chore chart. So like, obviously the bathrooms are like a daily thing. So we'll, we'll bust out our chores. We'll clean the trucks. And then there, we typically will spend anywhere from two to four hours training. We have to make sure we're staying up on top of what we already have to know. My shift has what's called the drug of the day. And every day we'll sit down and we'll go over and make sure everybody knows the pharmacokinetics, the routes, everything that we need to know about a specific drug. So typically the crew that gets off before you will post their charts. And then the crew coming on will go on and look and look for mistakes in their documentation uh, to make sure this is going to get submitted to the state and will become potentially become something that can be used in court. So you need to make sure that it's professional, everything looks good. So you'll log on and make sure that the other crew's charts look good. And then you'll also read what the other crews have written about your charts and fix any errors that you have. And anywhere between that, you could be running calls. That will vary greatly depending on how busy you are. So I had a shift uh, last week where we didn't get to lay down or get to relax until about 3.30 in the morning. We were just constantly running calls, but I've also gone 48 hours with not having a call at all. But we do sleep at the station. We all cook our meals at the station. Uh, we all spend time together. We try to have a family atmosphere, make sure everybody gets along. But at any time that can be stopped and we could have to go run a 911 call. And then from there, you just go home. It is about trying to unwind on the drive home so you don't bring any of the garbage home with you mm -hmm. uh, and then especially with COVID it's been just exhausting with I mean no one's ever gone through no one alive has ever gone through something like this before so it's it, I listen to music everybody has their own way to unwind but the biggest thing is making sure you don't bring any of the garbage home with you however you choose to do that working out other jobs I know a lot of guys have other jobs do you work with the same people every shift? Uh, typically, yeah. I have a set partner that I work with, and I've been with this guy for coming up on two years now. So I, I spend between a, a, roughly a third of my life with him. I think we all can predict that this is a heavily interactive job, whether you're interacting with coworkers or people out there having emergencies. Do you feel like there's ever some time just to have to yourself? Uh, it can be that way, but I, I, it depends on, again, kind of regionally where you're at, but law enforcement doesn't really have 
facilities for them. So they'll come and use the restroom at the station that I'm at. Uh, their place to kind of unwind is to come hang out at the station and talk to us. So we do interact with them quite a bit. We PD. The other aspect of this is that we deal with the nurses at the ER. So we'll drop off a patient and then they will text us information like, hey, your patient's COVID positive or if we have a trauma patient and I would like to follow up and know how they did after I've dropped them off. So there is a lot of everyday interactions and there's also a lot of people that will come by. I, I would say on any given day, we probably have between one and three people want to have their blood pressure checked or they want have got a new medication and they don't feel like it was explained well enough to them. So they'll come by and ask questions. So there's a big push in Arizona to do something called community paramedicine. And so basically what that is, we're going to try to reduce the amount of patients going into the ER for things that can be taken care of at home or outside of the hospital, or is to reduce the emergency room congestion. So when we do things like community paramedicine, it's if someone's gone into the ER and they've gotten a, like a cardiac procedure, like a cardiac stent, or what's called a cabbage coronary artery bypass graft, we'll go in and check on these people when they get home and make sure they're taking the right doses of the right medications, uh, their vital signs look good, that their cardiac rhythms are where they should be. Uh, also checking on people who are like new diabetics to make sure they understand what the sliding scale is for what food they can eat how they use their glucometer, what their normal blood sugar should be. And also in this is like with people who are new asthmatics or someone with a post-COVID diagnosis who is now given an inhaler or any other uh, medications that will help them breathe, we'll go in and make sure that they understand when and how to use that and what symptoms will be associated with them using it. So when you see people come to the fire stations or, they, or any, any place where uh, ambulances are kept, there's a push to have people who are having anxiety to drive themselves to the fire station and they'll to sit outside. And the hope is that they'll work through their anxiety through themselves, knowing that they're in the parking lot and we're right there and can come help them if they need to. The reason behind it is it's to reduce us going to their home and sometimes sitting there in excess of an hour, trying to coach them through uh, controlling their breathing and getting them their anxiety back under control. When this first started, uh, I brought in a cardiac arrest call in the hospital that I have, that I transport to has three of these code rooms. Well, there were already three people in there. Uh, one of which didn't, it wasn't a critical patient, but they just didn't have anywhere else to put them. So they tied them up into this code room. So we showed up and we actually worked a code on the gurney in the hallway of the, in the ER. And so like that is another aspect is that we're completely freeing these rooms that shouldn't be tied up with lesser things like, I don't understand how this medication is supposed to work. If we can redirect those individuals to resources outside of the hospital, it's a, actually is a bigger step to helping people who are critical or traumas and things like that who need all of the attention of the providers. So there's really a lot more aside from just running calls of the interactions we have with people. So the, something too that I've done that I don't currently do at my current job, but I used to work on a truck that was a critical care truck. That if the weather was bad and we couldn't fly somebody, we would put them in this ambulance and we had four providers. There's a big truck and people are upset about wasting gas, but that truck had the capability of doing MRIs to assess for people having strokes. Uh, we had a larger drug selection to use for certain things like that. Uh, and that's another aspect of 
really an education standpoint that people don't like seeing their taxpayer money of these vehicles driving around, but they don't understand that it's actually being, it's very beneficial to have uh, resources that are out like that. That is incredible. I had no idea. You're, you're bringing a, a hospital and a pharmacy into the, the field. Yeah. Getting stuck behind people or traffic when we can, someone that can take eight minutes, 10 minutes to get to a hospital when we can do it right there. We're having very positive outcomes with patients. So I think a lot of the listeners are going to be excited about this episode because I'm sure you are full of stories. I mean, can you share some really good positive experiences and and what good days look like for you? So in the state of Arizona, the state has 41 medications that they say pre-hospital providers can use. From there, we have what's called a medical director. And the hospitals that are in charge of directing the EMS will decide what of those 41 drugs they'll let them use. So some of the more rural areas where you only have one paramedic already available in a smaller town, they're not going to have the same access to the drugs that the big cities will have. We have like a chest pain protocol, or if I have a patient who's having chest pain, I have to hit all of these boxes. And if I find something that is outside of the norm, but I, I know I can do it, but it's not part of my everyday thing, I'll call medical control and get permission to do that. There's a drug called glucagon. So glucagon is a drug for a patient who is hypoglycemic, has a low blood sugar. So if you can't access an IV, you can give them something called glucagon. And glucagon is a smooth muscle relaxer. So that will release the glucose storage that's stored in the liver. And that will raise the blood sugar and people who are in a hypoglycemic coma will shortly come back to their normal mental status and we can go from there. So knowing that glucagon is a smooth muscle relaxer. We had this lady who had made her own sangria and she didn't do a good enough job of cutting up her uh, fruit in her drink. So she was drinking this and she got a blueberry stuck down by what's called your epiglottis, which is the flap of skin that covers your trachea. So it was stuck down there. She was what we call tripoding. She's leaning forward, really having a hard time breathing. She's salivating Uh, like crazy. And she's also not letting us visualize. If she can't take care of it on her own, we would sedate her and remove that. Well, she's not letting us do any of that. She's not having any of it, but she's obviously in distress. So we can just transport her to the hospital or we can do the best we can with what we have. So we called our medical direction, knowing that glucagon is a smooth muscle relaxer between basically from your tongue back to your stomach are all smooth muscles. So we got permission to give glucagon. So even though it's not the normal reason we would give it, it actually relaxed everything. And she was able to just lean forward and that blueberry fell out of her. So that was a really cool experience. And that's the great thing about understanding that there's 41 drugs. And even though not everybody has access to them, why we need to know in detail what they do, what they're used for. We can predict that this will do something. We can get permission from the doctor. And if he's on board for it successful in using this drug in an abnormal way. The morbid side of this is that we get excited about having a trauma call, or it's not really that we're in, we're heartless. It's just that it's the exciting, and this is what we train for kind of thing. So when you have a trauma patient who has a good outcome, is an awesome experience. So a couple of years ago, I had a six-year-old kid who was actually in cardiac arrest. We got his heart back. Uh, the whole thing. And then he brought a plate of Christmas goodies to the station and he got to hang out with us on Christmas day. Most people will never have an experience like that where you, that kid wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for us. And those are the really cool things that make it worth it. 
even though there's a lot of negative, a lot of people don't like what we do. It's the few times that we have a, a tremendous outcome that make this job worth it. And then, of course, I'm, I'm sure we can all predict what, you know, what a bad day looks like for you. Is there one that, that stands out? The crews that work closer to interstates are going to have a lot more trauma calls. So I had one, one call. We had 11 fatalities in one, one car accident. So some, that gets to be a lot. You're going to see trauma. You're going to see people who have been raped or sexual assaults. You're going to see a lot of death. You're going to have to tell family members, I'm sorry that your loved one has passed. The reality is also that I don't know anyone who's never been kicked or punched or bitten or spit on who does this job. That's just going to happen. There's a lot of people who don't like having the ambulance around. But it's the fact that you know your crew has your back and that those bad days seem to be less of a thing because you don't feel alone because in a largely, largely negative career, having someone that you know you can trust makes it feel like less of a big deal when you're having to deal with all the all the garbage that's out there. I didn't know that people in your field were that, I guess, abused. Why is that? What are the reasons why people get angry with you guys? Or what are those scenarios surrounding? Well, I, a lot of people don't like law enforcement. And we work hand in hand together. So a lot of times the interaction will immediately change when they show up. I'm, I'm a huge supporter of them. They've literally saved my life on more than one occasion, but you can, sometimes you can feel the atmosphere change. Or the other aspect is that a lot of these, I, I feel safe saying that 25% of the calls that we run in a city are going to be intoxicated individuals who that are, want to fight, that aren't happy that we're there. So I've had people, like, hey, someone called 911 for you. We're just here to check on you. I've heard people cuss at me. I've had people throw things at me. For some reason, it tends to be that there's a lot of people that don't like seeing big vehicles driven around where taxpayers pay for that. Yeah, high, high stress situations. I guess that can put people on edge. Well, and it's shocking how many people don't handle stress well, even though they're not the ones that are being responsible for it. They're just involved in it in some way. Or bystanders, how poorly some of them handle stress and the way, the way they treat the providers who show up is another shocking aspect of it. Oh, that's so hard to hear that. I mean, you never know how you're going to act in, in those situations. That's so disappointing to hear. We feel the same way. We love when people are willing to help and they'll give us accurate information and they're trying their best to be a participant in any way they can. I don't even know how to ask this, but I was going to say like, what's an unexpected situation at work, but your guys' whole career is centered on the unexpected. Maybe what is the situation that, I don't know, really, really took you by surprise? I, well, the problem is I, my definition of appropriate is completely different than anybody else's. Uh, one day we're in the hospital parking lot. We're cleaning out our ambulance and this truck comes like screeching tires. They smash on the brakes. Uh, this lady gets out and says, help, help, someone come help me. Uh, so I put on some gloves. I walk over to her, her truck that's fairly close to the ER entrance. And there's a guy who is unresponsive, who's laying face down in the backseat of this truck. And he's got a flap of skin that's folded back. And I can see he's bleeding pretty bad. He's got scratches all down his, uh, his back. So I yell for a guy in another ambulance to come help me. And he brings his gurney over. Uh, we lift this guy onto the gurney, walk him into the hospital. Narcan is a big thing now for drug overdoses. So that was already right there. The doc gave him Narcan. 
This guy wakes up, is completely clueless to what happened. I go back outside. I don't have any answers. The doc's asking me questions, and I like I I don't know what to tell you. This just so I said I'll go ask her. So I walk outside. I say what happened, and she says he is a heroin addict. He overdosed in the bathroom. We live on the third floor, and there's stone steps. So I gra- I didn't want the cops to come to my house. So I grabbed him by the ankles and I dragged him down two flights of stairs, and he banged his head on every stone step the whole way and she got him in the back of the truck and drove him to the er but it just that was her thought process of like i don't want to go to jail so i'm just going to drag him down two flights of stairs and his head just oh his head bumped on every single step and they're like outside like stone they're like hard steps like that's another one though that you look back on it and you just have to laugh because but my my funny and this industry's funny are different than everybody else's funny. So I don't know that I have a good good answer for you on this one. Yeah, that's you know, and and I think you have to you have to sort of be that way, right? In this field, you have to be able to kind of look back at some of these situations and just laugh because how else would you be right. able to get up and do it again the next day? I mean, I guess I guess another question that kind of came to mind was do you feel like burnout is a very frequent thing? for people in this field? And if so, how do you avoid it? So it is a very frequent thing. A lot of people own a, like a construction in something in the construction industry. So they'll have like a flooring job or they'll do drywall or something to keep them distracted outside of when they're at work. I've had some pretty severe burnout and I actually stopped working in EMS for six months because of it. But it, yeah, I missed it so much I came back. The chaos is something you get addicted to, strangely. But I think a burnout's definitely a big thing. A lot of people aren't respected. Like we've talked about, you get assaulted or people, I've had just the other day, someone just spit on me. That is a huge attribute to the burnout rate in this field. And the only way to overcome it is to find your own thing to keep you sane. Right. Yeah. Just kind of finding something for yourself that's yours that'll keep you distracted. So what is the end goal for someone in your position? I know that we talked about people do retire in this field and then some people work up. Yeah. So they'll have like a ship supervisor. Then you'll have kind of like a general manager. The other great thing about this job though, is that it's a stepping stone for a lot of people. So a lot of people get into this field to go through nursing school. The hospital that I transport patients now, I think there are eight doctors who are paramedics. So a lot of them will get their paramedic and then it's a They get an introduction into the medical field, but you're also having a stable job while you're going to school. I also work with a guy who just got accepted into PA school, and they told him that because he has EMS experience, he was the number one applicant for the program he applied for because he had the experience and he knew how to interact with patients and and, uh, deal with the things that you deal with. But there's also things like, like a witness kind of for court. You get hired to testify to this is what you should have done kind of thing like that. Another thing that I did in my last agency, we were the pediatric death review board. So if there's a homicide or someone dies in a car accident or something like that, and it's the job of this board to look at the EMS documentation, look at the law enforcement documentation, look at how the doctors handled things in the emergency room, how the medical examiner did the autopsy. And if we feel like there's enough to definitively say we're, we're on board with this, we can call this a legitimate death or we need to rule this a homicide. And we had the ability to kick back things to certain individuals 
we weren't happy with how law enforcement did their report. So we told them they have to redo it or it's not, not going to be submitted to the state. So that there's other advancements and things like that where having the experience uh, opens up other opportunities that you wouldn't get outside of not having healthcare experience. What better way to prepare for another career in the healthcare field than something like this, where it is just completely hands-on and so much crisis intervention? Well, and it, EMS is the catch-all for everything. Uh, recently, the uh, nursing school that's in the area that I work started having their students come through and spending a shift on the ambulance. Putting them on an ambulance gives them the opportunity to see that it's not, it's not a controlled environment like it is in the ER. And I'm hoping that after this interview as well, that, you know, there's, there's a lot more respect for people in the field because I think you're right. Just nobody knows what you guys go through and, and the environment that you guys work in. What advice or takeaway would you have for a listener who might be interested in this position? Uh, well, like we talked about, you really have to have a tough skin. That's the biggest thing. And not so much that people are going to be mean to you. It's that you're going to deal with a lot of crap. Uh, you're going to see death. Unfortunately, you're going to see dead children. You're going to have to go through, tell family members, we're sorry that your loved one has passed. Uh, and that you have to find a way to overcome that and move on. Also, I would, if you're really wanting to get in this, start doing ride-alongs with your local agencies. If you have a fire department who runs an ambulance, I go talk to them and they'll let you come on. You will spend time on the fire truck and on the ambulance. Uh, some of the agencies will even also let you fly on their plane if they're a medical transport from a smaller hospital to a bigger hospital. I would definitely open yourself up to do things like that. This isn't just a job. This is like it's a lifestyle and it's going to be, it's going to take everything from you. You're going to have investigators who are going to call you on certain calls on your days off and you're expected to talk to them sometimes for hours. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. Mm -hmm. There's a criminal investigation going on and you're expected to talk. Be prepared to not have the typical life that you have now, but also be prepared to have the most rewarding and in reality, one of the most fun jobs there is. I wouldn't do anything else. I love this job. I know everyone that I work with loves this job and you get addicted to it. Thank you to Jeremy for donating his time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at Employed Podcast and visit our website, employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.